practice. I do think that yoga is worth it if you wanted to practice it. It's just, it's just trying to get that education out there, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to work with people and really just get them to know for themselves rather than relying on their teacher, trying to get them to know all, all my students, hopefully to get to know a part of their th themselves that maybe seems like a mystery, which is their bodies. And I said this before, I, I think that we, as the human race, uh, in terms of science, I think that science knows and understands more about outer space and the galaxy and the stars than we actually know about what's going on inside of our bodies. So it's, it's a huge mystery. Welcome to the Chasing Passion Podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Um, this week, we're joined by Dave Christensen, who's the founder of the Day One Yoga Method and the Level 2 Authorized Ashtanga teacher. She took up the practice of yoga in 2004 by taking classes that fit around her schedule and as she progressed she became more drawn to the Mazur style of practice of Ashtanga Yoga where students are taught in a relatively silent room with one-to-one -one instruction. After suffering from persistent back pain they found that the system with its hierarchy of postures and repetitive movements could actually be more harmful than helpful. Through the process and years of learning to heal and recovered from her back pain, Day was finally able to break free of the cookie cutter method of giving all students the same sequences of postures meant to be learned and repeated six days a week, sometimes for years and years on, with no variation and in asanas or movement patterns. With this new perspective, due to her own pain caused by repetitive movement, she recognized that the system of learning yoga asanas could be improved. Groups of asanas should be given according to each student's current and developing postural needs. The how being the Mazur method of one-on-one -on -one instruction where each person in the room is able to work according to their own needs, ability and pace was and is the most effective way to learn and grow. But the what of specific series and order of postures must be reassessed. And so the day one yoga method was born, which is a tailored and customizable uh, practice where there's zero delineation between advanced and beginner students and it's just students just people with issues all there for the healing and strengthening modality that yoga should be you can find more about day and the work that she's up to on her website which is called dayoneyoga.com or simply search day one yoga on instagram facebook or any other social media platform and you'll find her right there thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and without further ado let's jump right in Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. So I guess um, for the people who don't know who you are and have no idea what you're up to, could you just provide some context behind what you do and what you're doing, I guess? Yeah. So um, I'm, a, I'm a yoga practitioner and I'm a yoga teacher and I've been practicing for six, about 16 years and mm. teaching for almost as long. Um, and I was... Uh, a practitioner of Ashtanga yoga. And basically with, with the path of Ashtanga, there's quote unquote requirements to travel to India, which I did. Um, so I had been to India about 
six times and anywhere from one month to usually two months of stay. And I would practice. Um, and basically what I was doing, I was on the path for what I thought in my mind was certification. So there's three levels of, I guess you can say, um, classified yoga teachers. There's authorization level one, there's authorization level two, and there's certification. There's very few people in the world who are actually certified. There's probably some somewhere around the number of 50 people who are actually certified to teach Ashtanga yoga. Um, on my third trip, I was authorized level two. So at that time, it felt like a pretty big deal. And um, it was basically one of the kind of landmarks in my career where I was able to start um, putting out content, putting out information on so social media. Of course, Instagram kind of came up and it, and it blew up. And um, I was able to start to reach people more on, a, on an international level. And I started going to teach internationally. And um, I really thought that I was on the path of certification. And then things changed. And when you say things changed, uh, what changed? Um, what changed? There, there's a few things that changed, but like the main thing that changed for me and my own personal experience was that I had um, a pretty serious, I guess you can say, back injury or back pain. Um, I didn't really know what the cause of it was until a little bit later, um, which was mainly a repetitive movement injury. Um, I had two herniated or then it's now de degenerated discs. Um, which isn't actually the source of the pain. The source of the pain is muscle tight tightness. So I, it was pretty crippling pain. I, I couldn't really walk. And um, there was a huge part of my practice that was just unavailable to me in terms of like range of motion and postures and things like that. And uh, it led me on this path of discovering um, sort of pain patterns, movements, um, patterns and in injury, why so many people get hurt, how they're getting hurt, how come so many injuries are similar across the board. Um, and that got me kind of studying and questioning and, of course, out of necessity, changing the way that I was practicing. Right. And do you, like, do you know how to prevent such pain? Like what, what actually made this pain happen in the first place? Did you find out the reasons from all your study of anatomy and so on? Yeah. Um, the way that the, not just Ashtanga culture, but the way that the yoga culture um, has definitely, the direction that it's been headed has been in extreme um, feats of flexibility, really strongly pushing like a, like a backbending style sort of phenomenon. Mm. And uh, the, the teacher of Ashtanga yoga often um, talks about his students catching. So catching means that it's almost like a, a contortionistic approach to backbending where you backbend, you start standing and then you backbend and reach back and grab your ankles or your shins or your knees. So imagine bending over backwards and doing this. So many, many, many Ashtanga practitioners learn how to do this and do it not just like once a week, but like six times a week. Um, and that's what I was doing. I was doing that Usually a lot of people do that with 
assistance from the teacher. I was actually practicing alone the majority of the time when I wasn't in India, I was practicing by myself and I I was able to do it by myself. So I was doing it regularly. Um, A huge part of the practice became backbending, like the amount of time and energy and effort became how deep can you go in backbend? Can you catch your heels? Can you catch your ankles? Not just in standing positions, but other positions as well. And um, theoretically, that practice is really meant to balance itself out. So for instance, if you do a forward bend, then immediately after you're going to do a back bend. And if you do a back bend, immediately after you're going to do a forward bend. But the way that it actually works is that when you get to a certain level of practice, your, your practice becomes really heavily skewed in one direction or another. And uh, mine was definitely skewed. So I was just doing way too much backbending. Um, and it started getting me to realize, well, one, it was crushing. That was it. I, I just realized I hit a certain point and I was like, I don't think I can do this ever again, which felt like you were taking away this huge chunk of not only my practice, but my identity, my career. Am I, if, if I can't do this physically, am I going to be um, acknowledged as a good teacher anymore? Am I going to be, uh, is my reputation going to be ruined? Am I going to be able to continue doing what I'm doing in, in like much larger scale in my life? And so um, I had a pretty um, sort of heavy uh, sadness and almost crisis over this. And then, of course, I just um, really tried to start to investigate. Part part of the investigation was just to see if I would ever be able to do this again in a healthy way. And, um, of course, the answer was no. (laughs) But through that, as I continued practicing, I was already really, you know, like, relatively speaking, as far as yoga practitioners go, I was already strong. I was doing handstands pretty easily. I was doing, you know, things that most people have a difficult time with, like jump backs and things like that. But when I was able to take out this huge chunk of my practice, which was backbending, um, I had so much more time and energy to put into those strength type movements that it actually increased for me. And um, I became much stronger because of it. So yeah, of course, it's it's, it's sort of a cliche, but it's a good cliche. It's like those pains and those injuries and those lessons um, really like give you, teach you a lesson and kind of, they, they can break you or they can make you. And this one particularly made me into what I am now and what I'm teaching, what I'm trying to share with the world. Well, that's amazing. Like in a way, you know, like you see all these challenges in front of you and you're like, oh no, like my career is over, whatever. But like you can learn so much from these mistakes and well, not mistakes, but challenges and just come out better, which is exactly what you did. And I'm curious, you know, you, you practice Ash- Ashtanga. I'm going to butcher this name, but how, how do you pronounce the name? Ashtanga yoga. Ashtanga. Ashtanga yoga. Yes. And like, yeah. what is the difference between this kind of yoga and other types of yoga? Just for the people who don't have a clue what yoga is, because me included. Um, yeah. Like I'm, yeah, I've been practicing yoga like from time to time. Um, but I'm just, I've no idea what, like all the structures of yoga and so on. So like, what's the main difference kind of? Yeah. Um, so like just in the physical world of yoga, like Hatha yoga, um, the practice of asanas and vinyasas and so forth, 
um, I, you can kind of put yoga on a scale. And mm. on one far end of the scale is Ashtanga, which they call a traditional style practice. I don't know. Tradition is a, is a big question mark. But And then on the other side of the scale, you would put a, a practice like Iyengar. And Ashtanga yoga is um, a, a bunch of postures done in a row. So there's a lot of postures with no props and just basically um, whatever like patterns of movement that the student does is what they do. There's no necessarily, it's sort of true, sort of not true, but the focus on perfection of the posture sort of comes over time. Whereas in an Iyengar style practice on the other side of the scale is this idea that you are going to make the perfect representation of a pose. And if that means taking a student and putting their body flush against the wall or using a strap or using five blocks or using a bolster or whatever it may be, we're going to create, we're going to set up this situation to make this person in what is supposed to be this like highest standard of alignment. And of course, that methodology means that you're going to maybe do four or five poses in, in a single class. Whereas in an Ashtanga class, you would do something like, it's, it's almost hard to quantify, but you would maybe do 60 postures um, with jumping back in between, very active, very, very right. mobile, I guess you can say. So um, in Ashtanga, there are six series. You start with primary obviously. And then you do intermediate, which is second series. And then third, fourth, fifth, and sixth series are all called advanced practices, which is advanced A, B, C, and D. So um, you can, of course, be an Ashtanga practitioner and spend a lifetime doing primary series and get stuck, quote unquote, stuck. So what that means is like in the Ashtanga practice, if, if there's a posture that you can't do physically, you are meant to stay in that posture, meaning you'll never advance until you can do the pose that you're on. In some ways, it's, it's a nice system. It's a smart system because it sort of gets you to recognize what maybe some limitations are in your own body rather than ignore them. On the other hand, it could mean that, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you have um, some sort of postural dysfunction. Primary series is uh, a practice of largely forward bends. So one of the things I talk about is whether or not you're, you're a posterior pelvic tilter or an anterior pelvic tilter. If you're a posterior pelvic tilter, your posture is hunched forward a bit. There's a bit of rounding in your back. So um, one of the real life examples I have is that I had a student in my class who I, I was traveling. I was actually um, overseas teaching. And he was doing primary series with his wife and they were just starting. And of course, that's where, where you start is primary series. And he called me after a few days of practice and said, called the studio owner really and said, I love day, I, but I can't practice. My back is just killing me, which made me say, let me call this guy and talk to him. So I found out that he's a car mechanic. So if you're a car mechanic and eight hours of your day minimally are like spent with your head underneath the hood of a car and you're bent forward, doing a practice like primary series will literally break your back. And for 
you know, maybe an average person, it can be a really great practice. But for a guy like that, it would not only really hurt him, cause him more pain than he was having in his life prior to doing the practice. But the way that the Ashtanga system works is that you're now stuck. So, of course, there are going to be certain movements, certain postures that he can't do. And he will literally be stuck in this pattern of, you know, forward bending and not really being successful at it. And literally just on the other side of the fence, the first like eight postures of second series could be life, you know, changing like he he could be completely healed. It's the maybe one of the most therapeutic things that he could do, but those postures will never be available to him because of the system, which is that you're stuck in this repetitive cycle of, you know, not being able to bind Mari Chasna A or Supta Kamasana or something like that. So I just really started looking at the practice and the way that we're, we're doing things. And I was like, you know what, here's the problem. Instead of having a series of poses which is what Ashtanga is, having a series of poses that are all laid out in front of you and saying, well, this is the order you must do them in just like A, B, C, D, and taking the student's body and sort of forcing it to fit this sequence in this order, the much better way is to say, here's a person and here are some postures and let's see how those postures fit into this student's life or into this person's life. And that might mean that for somebody who's a car mechanic or somebody who sits at a desk all day or somebody who has just some kyphosis or other whatever rounding back issues, that the best place to start is not in forward bending. The best place to start is in back bending. Um, And there's vice versa. That's true. People who are natural backbenders, people who are in, in anterior pelvic tilts should not be doing backbends. So it's really about understanding the person, their body, doing personal assessments for each student or each person that walks in in front of you and and really talk to them and see what their life is like before prescribing certain movements. Right. Um, And you know, if people go to yoga class, but not all yoga teachers actually take that into consideration they just you know they just kind of go with the flow whatever and what 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 would you tell these people who you know want to relieve their lower back pain but have no idea where to start and perhaps their yoga teacher doesn't take that into consideration and you know just finding out what kind of body type body type to have and so on so like what should these people do who work in an office all day who stand all day who have lower back Mm. pain perhaps like how should it how should it fix the problem there well there's a few ways one is first understand that all back pain is not the same. Right. Every doctor you go to, every physical therapist you go to, and as a matter of fact, I just had a student um, call me last week saying, uh, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm worried. I can't do my practice and I love my practice and I don't do anything else. I don't run. I don't go to the gym. All I do is my practice. And now I might not be able to do my practice. And she went to uh, the physical therapist that was nearby her house and the physical therapist said basically, oh, well, people who sit a lot, people who work at desks. Oh, so 
almost every physical therapist and doctor and even yoga teacher sort of has an understanding of back pain that's caused from too much spinal flexion from sitting for long periods of time. But this is not that woman. This is not that person. She has three kids. She's very active aside from yoga. I mean, she takes them out. She plays with them. She she's on her feet all day and she has a practice of backbending because she has made it to this certain point in the Ashtanga series where you get to backbending. So a lot of her practice, a lot of her work, a lot of her effort is in backbending. This woman has, has done too much. So what she needs to be doing is working on rounding her back and, and doing basically the opposite motion. So first you have to understand what is it, what's the cause of your back pain? I actually just made a, a post on my Instagram stories today about that. If you're a person who stands a lot for work or just it's your lifestyle, one of the things that will one, your, your back pain is probably caused from a bit of anterior pelvic tilting, which is due to tight spinal extensors and hip flexors. So what can you do? There's a few things you can do. Number one, work on stretching the back muscles and stretching the hip flexors. Number two is work on strengthening those opposite groups of muscles. So opposite of your back or your abs, work on doing abdominal strength. Opposite of your hip flexors are your glutes. So work on doing glute strength. And then what you can do is change, change your practice, change how you're thinking about your movements, um, things like that. But if you're a person who stands all day, the simple answer is to sit more. When you sit more, relax, round your back. So a lot of times people think that sitting the correct way to sit is sitting up straight like this, you know, like what your mother tells you to do or your teacher tells you to do. And even your yoga teacher tells you to do is that you must sit with a straight back. Actually, for people who are APT, this is the worst thing they can do when they sit. They have to relax. They have to round their back. They have to let those back muscles actually lengthen because they're probably not lengthening 90% of their day. They're probably in a shortened position so much so that they're stuck. And that's where the pain comes from. So you have to understand where the pain comes from um, and analyze a little bit of your lifestyle. If you are that person who sits for work or does like a lot of computer work or um, drives a lot of driving, something like that, then it's going to be the exact opposite solution. Get up, stand up, walk around more, set an alarm every 20 minutes to get off of your chair and, and do something. Um, and the cause of that would be really, really tight hamstrings that tilt your pelvis backwards. It reduces some of your hip flexion and then your spine goes into flexion instead. So how do you solve that problem? Work on strengthening your quads, work on stretching your hamstrings um, and do some Really, like when I say spinal extension exercises, I'm not talking about bending over backwards and catching your ankles. What I'm talking about is doing positions like uh, Superman, doing little minor spinal extension exercises every day that can help alleviate a lot of pain. Hmm. So, yeah, it just depends what's going on with you. And then there are people with lateral pain. There are people with scoliosis. So you have to be able to really understand the person who's sitting in front of you and talk to them and see what their life is like. So, Right. So it always depends on what situation the person is and you kind of have to adjust and figure out for yourself. Okay. And when you 
Um, in one of your posts, you mentioned the word yoga and what it means for you. Uh, can you just kind of explain what you mean by the when you say principle of yoga is union? Yoga is union. Because um, I've never uh, heard that before and I found that pretty interesting. Can you just explain what, what that means? Oh, God, I don't know. That could like I could answer that question in a different way. So I guess I like, what is it? You asked me, but <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> and so like, what is yoga for you? Uh, for me, like outside of the, the philosophical realm of what the word yoga means, which is union or to connect um, or, or to be one with maybe not only yourself, but everything, everyone, everyone else. Mm. So there, those gets into like some deeper philosophies about duality and um, things like that. But uh, what what is the practical purpose, the practical application, the practical, you know, things that yoga brings to my life? One, um, now that I've learned how to use it, basically yoga is a tool. It's just like, like what they say about like a knife, you can use a knife to like cut yourself a nice piece of cake, or you can use a knife to like kill somebody. So that's, that's it. Understanding that yoga is a tool and it could literally um, like, you know, bring you so much joy and nourishment and all these things, or it could be something that is really, really damaging. Um, so now that I've learned how to use yoga as a tool in my life, it is something, it's a way that I learn how to bring like neutrality back to my body. So I obviously I'm prone to some postural dysfunction, which is APT in my case. Um, and it's a way for me to like, basically just get stronger, work on my skills, um, feel empowered, um, be able to do other activities and feel my best. So that's the tool. That's why I keep doing yoga is because um, I want to be able to do other stuff for a really long time. <laughs> and so yeah, yoga... I think, go ahead. No, yeah, sorry, sorry. sorry I didn't, I, yeah, keep going. That's okay. Oh. And um, is yoga for everybody? Um, can everyone do yoga or should certain people just avoid yoga altogether? No, anybody can do yoga, but not that's that's the point exactly is that not everybody should be doing some prescription of yoga. Everybody should um as I said, don't take a person and try and fit them to the yoga. Take take the yoga and try and fit it to the person. And then yes, absolutely everybody could do yoga. But part of that is having um a a really um I guess the word maybe is somewhere around the word of, of like compassionate understanding teacher, somebody who, who listens to, to the student and then can is educated enough that they can give them really good advice in terms of how to move the body, biomechanics, functional movement, um, yoga postures, things like that. If, if there isn't that time, which in most yoga classes, the way that, conventional yoga classes are taught that doesn't happen so what i'm trying to do is number one start to create personal relationships with the people who i'm working with 
um, really understand what's going on with their lives, their body, what they enjoy. Do they like sports? Do they work for a living? Are they stay at home mom or dad? Things like that. Like all those things can affect their body, how they move, how much energy they have and what type of practice they should be doing. So, um, yeah, you just have to understand a little bit about the person before, before saying, okay, this is the yoga you should do, whether it be vinyasa classes or ashtanga classes or whatever, that's none of that matters. What, what matters is like taking the best combination of what we have as yoga knowledge, yoga postures, vinyasa, whatever, and applying that to the person who's sitting in front of you. So when you work with students, when students come to your classes, um, what is the kind of approach that you take? I know you mentioned you build relationships, but like what are the next steps that you do with each student? Um, well, one of the things that I, I have taken away from the Ashtanga practice there's, is that there's a traditional way of teaching, which is that um, as a teacher, you work with each student individually one-on-one. So this is called the Mysore style of practice. And that means that you can have maybe 10 to 20 people in a room, but it's basically like getting a private lesson in a room full of people. So that means that I can have somebody who's come in, who's been practicing yoga for 20 years, and they're doing an, a, a practice that's appropriate for them. If it was a, a conventional or traditional Ashanga class, they might be on second series or third series. Um, I've, I obviously have known a couple of people working on fourth series. Um, but if I have a student also who's brand new and it's their second day, their practice is not going to look like that same person, but they're in the same room doing the same, essentially a yoga practice. So um, that's one, that's one method that I've kept is that I'm, I'm not trying to teach a yoga to a school of fish and hoping that everybody is moving in the exact same way in the exact same pattern. What I'm hoping to do, what I'm hoping to achieve is to give them a practice that is suitable for where they're at in their life. Um, so it's all about in individual instruction in a, in a nutshell. Mm. And what kind of mistakes do you see other yoga teachers making? Um, perhaps like what is a waste of time when it comes to yoga practice, if that makes sense as a question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what's a waste of time is, um, how do I answer this question? The waste of time is working on extreme flexibility. And what I mean by that is that everybody is, we're all have this experience in our bodies and our bodies um, frame or skeleton is only capable of so much movement. So what that is, is called like structural limitation or range of motion. Our range of motion is what it is, period. Okay. Like our ultimate range of motion for spinal extension, for instance, is about 25 degrees and our range of motion for spinal flexion, um, for the lumbar spine is about 60 degrees. It can't be more than that. So if you are doing movements or postures that are challenging the actual structural limit, then not only is it a mistake, it's, it's like, it's like damaging. It's like a big mistake. Okay. Wow. It's, 
it's it's something that we should take a, take away this focus of the flexibility. The more flexible you are doesn't mean that you're the best yoga practitioner and start to put some of that attention into strength building. And when you say yeah. strength building, and do you mean specifically through, you know, weights, through body weights, or do you mean strength training through yoga? And yeah. uh, oh, Both, all of it, all, all three. Um, obviously, because I'm a yoga teacher, and typically I'm in yoga studios, and there's nothing in the yoga studio but a couple blocks, blankets, and a yoga mat. So really what that means in my case is body weight, of course, and, and doing body weight training through yoga. Um, and it's built into the practice. Um, if you think about it, or if you know, or, or look at a Shanga, every single asana or the pose that you do is really meant for mobility and not, not just any kind of mobility. It's, it's mainly meant for hip mobility. And then all of the, the connections between the poses, which are called vinyasas, all the movements that you do in between the postures are largely meant to be for stability or strength. And that is, again, not just any strength, but specifically upper body strength. So it's basically like trying to take the functions of your body, like your hips are generally strong, stable joints because we walk on two feet. And so even though our hips are mobile, in comparison to our shoulders, they're, they're stiff. Whereas because, you know, because we have free arms, our shoulders are one of the most mobile joints in our body. And basically what we're trying to do is take the functions of the hips and make them a little bit more mobile, make them act a little bit more like your shoulders and take your shoulders and make them a little bit more stable and make them act like your hips. So at its best, at its like ideal, that's, what the Ashtanga practice should be doing. Is that what it's doing? No, not necessarily, because again, it's all about how the culture drives the interest and uh, what your teacher is pushing, what social media is pushing, which a lot of it, if you look, is like really insane mobility. They're just like acts of flexibility, contortion, uh, which is fine. There's nothing like wrong with that. I have actually a friend who's a contortionist who just grew up that way, you know, since they were a kid. But to to play with that sort of flexibility or that range, especially like in the middle of your life or a quarter of the way through your life, um, there can be some serious repercussions. And yeah. is it is it possible to actually build muscle from yoga? Oh yeah, it's possible. I mean, I, I've done it for sure. Uh, it's definitely possible. And how, but how again, do you do that? How do you do it is, is again, body weight, learning how to hold your weight in your arms mm-hmm. and, and being able to support yourself. Again, for me, all of, all of the uh, strength, quote unquote, strength training is, is really upper body. So it's a lot of being able to do arm balancing, hand balancing, what they call jump throughs and jump backs, push-ups, essentially glorified push-ups, things like that is, is how I've done it. Um, And you can milk that for as much as you want. Um, It's, it's really limitless in terms of strength building. You can build and build and build. Of course, there are more effective and efficient ways to build muscle, but it all depends on your goal. Like if your goal is to be a bodybuilder, yoga is a complete waste of time, then you should just pick up a couple weights. 
but if your goal is, you know, it just depends. It just depends on what, what the, the purpose is. And of course, most of us are not walking around through life, one, trying to be a bodybuilder or, or win competitions for something like that. Most of us are just trying to deal with our own bodies as we age. And, uh, and yeah, there's definitely a, a place for that inside of yoga if it's encouraged. A lot of time people don't even know that's an option. So interesting. And you know, when it comes to like you mentioned like, you know, strength training and so on, but how do you prevent um muscle imbalance? <laughs> well, first of all, it's 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 a great question. I talk about muscle imbalance all the time, and it's like a huge theme that runs through my thinking, my practice, my teaching, everything that I talk about. Muscle imbalance is absolutely natural and vital to life. So that's the first thing that we should understand is that we need muscle imbalance in order to function the way that we function. Um, And the example that I always use is the difference between your biceps and your triceps, just so that you can understand uh, simple, easy muscle groups. And if I were to ask anybody, what, what muscle group is stronger? What do you think your biceps or your triceps? The majority of people would understand, if not intellectually, then intuitively that their biceps are stronger. And the reason why your biceps are stronger is because your bicep has to go into a shortened position to make your elbow bend. Well, we all need our elbows to bend. And in fact, your elbow is probably bent right now. And if you look down at your elbows and you say, okay, well, if my elbow is at least partially bent, that means that my bicep must be in a shortened position. Now, on the other end of that joint is your tricep. So not only do you need a muscle to shorten to make that joint go into flexion, but you need a muscle to lengthen to make that joint go into flexion. And therein lies the imbalance. So let's say that we can pretend 90% of your day, your, your elbows are bent for some reason or another. Well, that's the way that your body is put together. That's the puzzle piece of your body, but your muscle controls the bone. So that means that 90% of the day, your bicep is in a shortened position while 90% of the day, your tricep is in a lengthened position. That's normal. The thing that starts to happen is that muscle imbalance as we age. So let's say the difference between a 20-year-old man and an 80-year-old man, muscle imbalance is that shift in posture. So as you become older, as you age, in other words, the more living you do, the more shortening the short muscles become. So uh, the strong muscles, let's say your biceps in this case, become stronger and stronger and stronger, not because they become stronger as an 80-year-old man compared to a 20-year-old man's biceps, but because they become so much stronger in relation to its own body. So your bicep starts to become stronger and stronger and stronger, then your tricep becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And that's where the postural dysfunction or imbalance comes in. It really has to do with how much use we put into... um, our, our muscles and basically how much living we do. So if you really want to, if we're all looking for the fountain of youth, if we're all trying to, you know, increase our longevity physically, the physical way to do that is to work on, is that me? Oops. Sorry about that. No, no problem. 
Um, the physical way to do that is to work on finding out which are the strong muscles or the tonic muscles in, in your body and work on releasing them, stretching them. That means, you know, foam rolling, yoga, um, massage, acupuncture, whatever that is. And on the other hand, work on figuring out what are the weak muscles in your body, the, the triceps of the body? What are those muscles that are typically in a lengthened position? And then how can I learn how to strength train them and then target those muscles, isolate those muscles in some sort of strength training program, which can be as little as 10 minutes a day, or it could be like two hours a day. It just depends what you want to put in, but not necessarily longer is better either. But um, so that's the idea is just to create a little bit more of that muscle balance. Right. And on the subject of training, you mentioned you know, 10 minutes or two hours, whatever. Um, when it comes to yoga practice, how much should people practice per week, uh, per day? Is it a daily thing they should do? Um, like what's the kind of overall uh, thinking behind, you know, your yoga practice, and how long you should spend on it? Yeah. Um, well, if you were to, to talk to a conventional or traditional Ashtanga teacher, they would say you should be practicing daily or six days a week. <laughs> and while that might be a nice idea, again, if there's not the education behind it, you could be exacerbating muscle imbalance, which get you are for sure. If you're not aware of muscle imbalance, you have to understand that uh, doing any pose, even something simple like doing the triangle pose, I'm sure you're you're familiar with triangle pose. Well, if you're trying to do something like, let's say, externally rotate your back hip and uh, do thoracic rotation, and maybe that's it. That Those things, those two things are very difficult. So rather than doing that, which requires the, the use or employment of weaker phasic muscles, what the body will do instead is say, well, I'm going to do the easiest thing. And that's part of our survival is that, oh, well, I'm going to just do hip flexion and spinal extension instead. And that's how the pose is going to be. So without any real education or application, the amount of yoga you do could actually be more detrimental than beneficial. Now, let's say, forget forget all of that. Just let's say that your yoga practice is what it's supposed to be, which is this ideal sort of utopian practice where it makes everybody feel better. If your yoga makes you feel good, yeah, do it five days a week. But you don't necessarily have to do it for two hours a day. I would say anywhere from like 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes is good um, for somebody who has like real like physical goals. For somebody who's just working on trying to create a little bit of balance in their life, even 15 to 30 minutes is good. Um, but doing it relatively frequently, like, you know, the consistency of doing like a five day a week practice um, would be beneficial. Yeah, because I, I recently started doing um, 30 days yoga and um, yoga with Adrian on YouTube because I felt okay. like I'm very inflexible and I thought yoga is the way and I'm, I'm loving it. But I'm curious okay. for like any beginners out there, um, like complete beginners who never heard of the word yoga even, who never attempted to stretch or whatever, um, how should they ease into yoga and start practicing and yeah? Mm, uh one is is find a good 
a, a good teacher, a teacher that they like. And finding a good teacher doesn't mean necessarily finding um, somebody who can do the coolest yoga poses because there's a lot of people whose practice is phenomenal looking mm. and very, very impressive, but they are not teaching necessarily or they don't know how to teach or there might not be the skill level to connect with the person, again, sitting in front of them. Um, there's a lot of projection in in not just yoga and life where, you know, you, you take your own sort of experience and just say, okay, well, that's what I'm going to apply to this person. It takes like really a second to, as a teacher, as anybody who wants to relate to anybody sitting in front of them, it takes like a second to, to step back and say, well, what's this person's experience and how realistic is it for me to project all of the work that I've done onto their educational experience? So part of that is there's no choice. That's how we teach is through our experience. But another part of that is being able to filter it for the person who's sitting in front of you, because you might have a person sitting in front of you who has absolutely zero desire to do a handstand, they just want to like hang out with their kids or their grandkids, then take away your own experience of handstanding and feed them some other part of your experience. So it's, it's part of the job of a teacher to be able to filter appropriately. Um, And I also think that another job of the teacher is to be able to understand some amount of body mechanics, whether you're an expert in anatomy or not. um, I don't know, but like having some understanding of how the body works and basically understanding muscle imbalance, understanding default patterns or compensations. Those are really huge things that usually are like, Oh yeah, yeah. Kind of in yoga, in yoga school and teacher training, we sort of glaze over it. But really understanding how that can impact your life um, and your general feeling uh, of, of pain versus pleasure um, is really huge. So if you're a brand new student, do some research, find a good teacher who can kind of um, guide you in a way that feels appropriate and healthy, somebody you like, somebody you trust, and, and start really slowly. Don't put any crazy expectations on yourself of being able to even touch your toes necessarily, or uh, even something worse, like put your leg behind your head or catch your heels in a back bend or something like that. Like the way to start is just to do start out with simple movements and do a little bit every day and add to it in a way that feels intuitive and natural and, uh, and see where it takes you. And if you start to experiment with deeper poses or whatever, and you experience pain or limitation, what I mean by going slowly is, is understanding, wait a minute, what's causing that. And instead of like, it's sort of like when you sit down at a meal, that's really big meal and you eat so fast, you don't realize you're full until after that's what could happen in yoga. You start doing so much and you start pushing your body to extremes, especially in terms of flexibility. And then you find yourself like in the end going, holy shit, um, my body is hurt right now or I'm wrecked or or whatever it may be. So going slowly enough that you can actually feel what's happening inside of your body and maybe change direction um, out of necessity from there. That's interesting. And do you feel like people give up yoga because that reason, like you said, you know, they try to progress too fast or they try to touch their toes too quickly and it's just not working out or whatever and they they give up. So I guess my real question is, 
why do people give up yoga? Because I'm sure a lot of people have started yoga before, but then just gave up maybe a few weeks or months later. Um, why do people totally. give up? Uh, one, yoga is so frustrating because it is not something that happens quick. There's no instant gratification. And then the imagery that we see is like so phenomenal. We're like, what I mean by that is what we see on Instagram and social media is that the people who are doing um, the contortionistic poses or the insanely beautiful handstands, you don't see all the years and work behind that. And so as a, as a new student starting out, of course, what you're attracted to is that perfect posture and that perfect handstand. And what you find yourself doing is just kind of flopping around on your mat. <laughs> like it's a very unsatisfying. So um, yeah, uh, you have to understand that there's, there's good goals to have like that in the future, the goals that kind of keep you pushing forward. But there's also like immediate goals that you should look for. Like, um, do you feel better? Do you are do you feel like you have more energy? Are you do are you are you feeling more comfortable in your body and your life? Things like that. That's that's basically why to stay in it. Uh, why do people quit? Is just because there's there's so much misinformation. There's so much communication. It is so frustrating. There's there's conflicting information. So if you go to one class and take a class with one teacher and they tell you, well, do do it this way and put your foot like this and stand this way. And you go to another class and they tell you, no, 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 that's not right. Do this. Put your foot that way. <laughs> and you're like, well, what the hell is this? I'm just going to like go for a run. Like who needs this? Like just do, <laughs> do something a little bit more simple. Um, so I do think that through all of the, uh, massive roller coaster and up and downs that I've had in, in my yoga practice, I do think that yoga is worth it. If you wanted to practice it, it's just, it's just trying to get that education out there, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to work with people and really just get them to know for themselves rather than relying on their teacher, trying to get them to know all, all my students, hopefully, to get to know a part of their th themselves that maybe seems like a mystery, which is their bodies. And I said this before, I, th I think that we, as the human race, uh, in terms of science, I think that science knows and understands more about outer space and the galaxy and the stars than we actually know about what's going on inside of our bodies. So it's, it's a huge mystery. Yeah, I love that point you mentioned with science, you know, that we actually know more about the world and what's what's out there than our own selves. And when you really think about it, that doesn't make sense because you're you're living with yourself every single day and you should really try and understand yourself to the to the fullest potential and really, you know, become more self aware. So I think that's quite an interesting point. Yeah. And yeah. you you also mentioned that there's also conflict in conflict information conflict when it comes to when when there's different teachers and they're all like maybe some some teacher might have a certain view and then another teacher has another view. Why do you think that is? Why why is there such misinformation in the yoga industry and in a lot of industries? To be honest, yeah, um, I I think that it's confusing. Uh, mm. A lot of a lot of what yoga teachers are teaching are actually teaching to what I call 
compensations, meaning um, there's a certain pose in, in yoga called Parsvottanasana. A lot of people call that pose pyramid pose. And basically what it's meant to be is that you open your stance and you turn one foot to the right and fold to the right. So it's basically like lateral and forward bending at once. And then you turn and you fold to the left. And what has happened, well, the idea is forward bending and lateral bending. So there's an element of thoracic rotation that has to happen. Well, again, thoracic rotation is difficult. So what's much easier and what the body would really like to do is rotate the torso, its limited amount, and then rotate the hip, which is much greater. And if you rotate the the torso and rotate the hip and you have your foot turned out, well, that can twist your knee. So what happens is yoga teachers start saying, turn your foot in. So now you can rotate everything. Well, now if you rotate everything, your, your spine or your thoracic doesn't have to rotate at all now. And then there's no stretch. So it's basically like saying, well, we're going to fold to the right. So you're reaching your head toward your right foot. And then we're going to let the whole left side of the body also go to the, the right. So you see there's no tension. So people are actually teaching that like, and that's a very common, that's conventional teaching is saying, well, we're just going to fold to the right and everything is going to turn to the right. So it's teaching to create safety because the knee now won't twist, but the purpose of the pose, if you if you look at the Sanskrit, the name is parsva, which means side. Tan means stretch. So the literal meaning of the pose is side, stretch, posture. So if you take your foot and you turn it to the right, but then you keep your back foot turned out, so your feet are at a 90-degree stance, and you keep your hip back, even though there's maybe some uh, temptation to turn it forward, if you keep moving your hip and in one direction, the opposite direction to the left, and you keep turning your head and your torso to the right, well, now there's stretch. And that's how you get your the, the side of your back, the parsvottan part, parsvottanasana part to stretch. So you're, you're stretching the space between your ribs and your, and your pelvis or the area of the quadratus lumborum. That's parsvottanasana. But I think I'm the only person, me and the people who work with me are the only people who are practicing it that way. Wow. I've never, I've never met anybody uh, who's, who's teaching it that way. And um, of course it all happened out of um, this tragedy that was, you know, insane back pain for me. And I was trying to analyze every little movement that I made and trying to look at not just the big postures like, oh, bending backward and catching my ankles, but every little thing. If there was an opportunity for me to feel relief in anything, walking, triangle, pyramid pose, standing, sitting, I did it. And I, I became very um, in tune, I guess, with, with subtle movements and sensations that I started to understand things a lot differently than how they're taught. And from all your study of biomechanics, um, functionality and, and anatomy, what were your kind of three biggest takeaways? My three biggest takeaways are number one, muscle imbalance, learning about muscle imbalance, learning that um, 
here's the big, the big part of that. The takeaway is that the pain, pain and injury happen. I wish I can say a hundred percent of the time, but that wouldn't be fair. Hmm. I'm going to say something like 99% of the time pain and injury happen on the side of the tonic muscle or on the side of strength. So a lot of times people, um, understand pain and injury as a weakness. Actually, the pain and the injury comes from muscle tightness or muscle shortness. So injury will happen. I'm talking about just muscularly, Mm. not breaking a bone, not breaking a bone or something like that. But injury will happen uh, from one of two things. One is what we call muscle spasms or knots. So that's when you, you know, a lot of people get that in their, in their upper back and shoulders, and that's the area of the trapezius. So the trapezius is a tonic muscle. Um, another option for muscle pain or muscle injury is tearing, tearing the muscle. So the reason why the muscle tears is because it's so tight, so strong that it doesn't want to stretch. If you tried to stretch a phasic muscle, like I'm going to go back to biceps and triceps. If you try to stretch a tricep, well, that's not difficult. Anybody can stretch their tricep. Your your tricep is stretched right now. So stretching a phasic muscle, there's no problem. The problem comes when you stretch a tonic muscle. And if that tonic muscle is so tight or stiff or strong that it doesn't want to stretch. So you'll notice muscle patterns in the body. Um, One is, let's say, hamstring tears. Nobody ever says, oh man, I tore my quad. No, dude, I tore my, I tore my hamstring or I have a, a, a hamstring pull. Um, so look at the patterns of pain and injury, not just in your body, in other people's body, athletes, um, yoga practitioners, um, just regular people who don't work out at all. The pain and the injury will, again, 99% of the time be in the strong muscle not the weak muscle. So that's, that's a huge takeaway. Um, another takeaway is that back pain stems from two different things. Um, well, many different things, but not just one different thing. Most people understand back pain as being a sitting problem, sitting too much, sitting at a desk. That is not all back pain. So learning about being a PT or PPT or even laterally tilted pelvic pelvic tilts, um, or scoliosis, things like that, but not all back pain is the same. And then the example that I just gave about, um, Parsvottanasana or pyramid pose that most instruction, especially in yoga, most instruction or understanding or conventional teaching about hip movement is not useful, maybe, maybe hurtful. Um, and, or just nothing at all, which means that you're doing a bunch of poses that there's, there's nothing happening. So how many poses do you do in yoga, especially if you've been practicing for a long time, that you do the pose, but you don't really feel anything? You're doing a forward bend, or you're doing Janusrasana, or you're doing whatever it is, and you're like, mm, I don't feel this one, and you're just, it's just kind of a, a rest. Well, when you keep practicing, that's going to happen more and more and more. And that means that probably 50% of your practice, you don't know what the hell you're doing or what the hell you're supposed to be feeling. Well, take that amount of time 
you know, if you're practicing 90 minutes, that's a good 45 minutes that you could be doing something useful. You're not. (laughs) So part of it is learning how to create efficiency, questioning authority, questioning conventional teaching and, and doing, seeing like how much juice you can squeeze out of the lemon. And if that means that you're doing an awesome practice in 45 minutes versus a practice that takes you two hours, but you're getting nothing out of, there's no return, then why bother? So that's another uh, big takeaway. And then um, of course, the thing that I think a lot of people kind of got got started following me for was the strength, the shoulder movement, the shoulder positioning, the stability, things like that, and getting comfortable learning how to hold your body weight in your arms. So when you're, when you're practicing yoga, should you always be feeling something? Because like from the few days that I've been doing yoga, uh, when I, whenever I do, for example, upward or upward, upward facing dog, um, I don't yeah. really feel that much going on, but I feel like it's probably doing some good for my spine. So like, should, should you know, should you like, you know, there's always these standard, I guess, exercises or yoga poses. But even like you said, the, the more you progress, you're not necessarily going to start feeling them. Does that mean you should avoid them altogether? Or yeah, so I'm, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. But like, I guess my overall question is, should you always be feeling something when you're doing your yoga poses? Yeah. Yeah, the answer, the simple answer is yes, you should be feeling something. Um, ideally, something that feels good. If you're feeling something that feels bad, mm. a change needs to be made. If you're doing something that feels like nothing at all, also a change needs to be made. What you're looking for is one of two sensations. One is some sort of like muscular stretching. Um, which again, typically happens in asana and the stretching should feel like kind of a dull, it borders on a bit of pleasure and pain. Okay. Cause sometimes when your muscles are very, very tight, it hurts a little to stretch yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> but let, let's be honest, but it should be, so it should be bordering on this kind of uh, pleasure pain kind of threshold. Um, but it should not feel like sharp, or like, you know, like that quick kind of acute, like, whoa, oh, or something like that. It, sh- it shouldn't challenge that sort of um, realm of, of uh, again, what I call like structural limitation. You shouldn't feel like a bone on bone sensation. You shouldn't feel sharpness. You shouldn't feel like this single pointed painful area when you're stretching. So that is a good sensation to feel. Or the other sensation to feel is is muscular work and therefore fatigue. So, so it's strength training. One of those two sensations is what you should be feeling in everything that you're doing or both at the same time. Then, then you're doing like a useful practice. If you're doing a bunch of poses and feeling nothing at all, you might as well just be sitting on your couch watching soap operas or whatever (laughs) people are watching. I don't know. So yeah. You should definitely be feeling something. I understand. And, you know, when it comes to yoga benefits, I, I mean, like some of the obvious ones are obviously you're going to be, become more flexible, perhaps more lean, if that's what people want. But is there any other major benefits that you found? Or is there any other major benefits in yoga? Because I know you've worked with a lot of students and people in the past. And like, is, has has there anyone has anyone ever like 
has there been a story that just really stuck with you you know people's transformation um anything like that oh i think uh, can you hear me because yeah know, yeah i, I can it. hear you uh, okay okay um i think that whenever you feel good physically other things start happening mm. like you start feeling better emotionally and you start feeling better mentally and you start feeling maybe more connected spiritually. So all of those things start to overlap a bit. And yeah, ultimately you can be living a happier, healthier life. Um, and, and that's that, that I think is, is a, a noble enough goal for anybody to want to do it. But what I what I'm trying to say here is that not yoga isn't necessarily the only way to achieve that. You can do yoga and yoga is great and I do yoga and that's something that whatever I enjoy, but I know that like the amount of years and time and effort that it took me to get to a place where actually my yoga is uh, more making me happy than miserable. It, it took me some time to get there. I don't know if other people want to put in that time. And if they don't want to put out that, out that time or they don't have a teacher that can kind of help guide them or whatever, there's definitely easier paths like, like just going to the gym and, or going for a swim or going for a run or whatever that can do the, the same thing just as good, maybe more efficiently. So, um, I don't ever want to be one of those yoga teachers that chastises people for doing other activities or sports or has other um, plans for their life like that. That's what we're meant to do. And the idea behind me doing yoga or anybody doing yoga, I think should be to enhance those experiences, not to take away from them for a long, long time. Why even bother saying that? is that when I was practicing yoga, there were so many teachers, um, popular teachers, teachers out there now who are making, you know, way more money than I am, um, who are telling their students not to do anything else. Like that, like, I remember a, a teacher telling one kind of higher level senior teacher telling one of the teachers that I worked with not to ride her bike anymore. Wow. And she was riding, she was riding her bike to work. I mean, like those things are good for like the environment and like, yeah. <laughs> like in like, Oh no, but your hips are tight. So don't ride your bike. Cause it's bad for your yoga is just like the most backwards ass thinking I can imagine. So one of the things that I want to make sure that um, I'm getting um, out there as far as messages is, is do what you enjoy and, and don't let yoga ruin your life. Like it should make your life better, you know. Well, that's that's I'm shocked by that story when the, when the yoga teacher said, um, "Don't ride your bike." That just doesn't make sense whatsoever. And you're obviously yeah. very driven and motivated, and you know you you. Am I right in saying that you wanted to pick up yoga because you saw the cover of National Geographic magazine with a person doing a really cool pose and you want to <laughs> make do handstand and so on? But like. What's your why behind yoga? What's your why behind your practice? What keeps you motivated? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true. I did. I was inspired by this 
cover of the National Geographic of, of a guy, I think, in his 90s, an Okinawan um, man who is in his 90s doing headstand. Um, that cover is from 2005, if you want to look up that National Geographic. But I started yoga before then. I started in uh, 2004. And the reason why I wanted to start was because I was in 2004 and the year prior in 2003, I was in my early 20s and feeling really miserable, really unhealthy, um, really disconnected from my body and feeling like uh, the trajectory of my life was not good physically. And I remember seeing women in their 40s and their 50s um, who were, you know, obviously at that time significantly older than me and looking better than than I did. So a huge part of, of my um, reason behind doing yoga was to to have that that longevity and to feel better and look better and and um, just feel like this like feeling of freedom in my body versus feeling like my body was like a prison. That's, that's kind of how I was feeling. Yeah. And what about now? What keeps you motivated right now? Same, same, same. same. Reason. Okay. <laughs> it's totally the same reason I, I, that I think the underlying why uh, really doesn't change very much. Yeah. And now, especially as I get older, I'm, I'm definitely uh pushing my, my yoga practice now almost here going, I've been doing for 16 years. So almost now half of my life I've been doing yoga. I definitely feel better now than I did then. Um, but it wasn't without it's like major downfalls and major life lessons. So yeah, it took a lot of learning. Hmm. And what does a typical day look like for you? As a yoga teacher, I know the whole coronavirus situation is messing things up at the moment, but I'm curious to know, like, what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah. Yeah. When, when the world is open. When the world is open. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, try to really uh, keep the mornings for myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I wake up and I, um, I, I like to swim. I live in Miami, so I try and swim early before it's too hot and sunny. And I practice. I do yoga. I can do it inside, so I usually do that second because I'm not as concerned about the heat or the sun. Um, and then I usually go and teach a class um, and um, come back home and whatever it may be, do some privates, maybe do some work other than that but i yeah i always swim and do yoga that's that's always like something on my list now that um everything's been closed i've been running instead of swimming Hmm. and then um and travel travel is a huge part was a huge part of of my work is that i was i was going to all different kinds of countries and cities and um teaching workshops or seminars more accurately so um like part of this podcast is to allow people to kind of discover what they're what 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 they're passionate about and Mm -hmm. like for somebody who wants to be a yoga teacher i'm curious to know like um like what are what's your favorite part about being a yoga teacher and just doing what you do um well the best part about being a yoga teacher is that you can really just make your schedule how you want it there's that flexibility i guess it's sort of like uh being like a real estate agent or something, you just make your appointments and do it according to how you want your life to look. And 
in the beginning, it's not like that. It's way more of a hustle. It's just like you take any job you can get. And if that means mm-hmm. teaching a class at six in the morning when you don't want, when that's not necessarily your vibe, you do it anyway. But when you get to a certain level, um, yeah, you can start making your own schedule and making it more flexible and, and doing it um, according to your to your needs and, and your lifestyle choices. Um, and that that's like the big benefit. But it's also like there's elements of it being a little scary, too, because you're self-employed and, <laughs> you know, you have to keep you have to keep your own gears turning in terms of uh employment right so like one of the challenges that i see is you know constantly well having work available because that's obviously a struggle uh, when you're self-employed so 100 percent. yep and yep. in one of your posts you mentioned uh, the word fate and what it means for you and yeah like, I'm, I'm curious to know like what how do you define fate well um i think will smith said that like faith is like not having a a plan B and you go and there are so many things in my life that um, I look back on like little things. Like I know that I am going to be able to press up into a handstand one day, something simple like that. And when you have that sort of like either determination or focus or whatever it is that you want to say, there is literally no alternative in your mind. It's just this like sheer, this is going to happen. That's what, that's what I'm going to do. That's so that's faith. Even if you may not recognize it as, as faith, faith um, is destroyed by doubt. So if you have an ounce of doubt, that doubt will taint every attempt at what you try, what, wherever you try to succeed. So really doubt is the enemy of faith. Faith is just knowing it like, like, you know, the back of your hand, you know, your name, you know, the city you were born in, you know, who your parents are. Well, you know that you're going to, you know, be a success, you know, that you're going to. So it's taking the things that, you know, like, you know, the past and putting it into the future. Right, so just having a complete other vision, just really going for it, have no plan B, just really, that's it. That's what you got to do. That's it, and yeah. Easy, wh- easier said than done, <laughs> by <Yeah>. the way. <laughs> but, you know, you have to start with little things, like uh, I'm going to do a headstand, and you have to believe it, and you have to know it, to I'm going to do a forearm stand, to I'm going to do a handstand, to I'm going to make a million dollars, to I'm going to have that big house, to I'm going to have that beautiful... Um, I'm going to turn it into like a talking head song really soon. Like I'm going to have that beautiful car and that beautiful wife and <laughs> whatever else it goes to. But it's that. Yeah. And like what I love about that is, you know, you like you're always chasing something in a way because like I don't know who said this, but somebody said, you know, progress equals happiness. And when I look back at my own life, um, I'm the happiest when I'm moving towards something. Like whenever I'm watching movies or just eating food or whatever, like I'm not necessarily happy. I need to be moving towards a goal. I need to be uh, working towards something. That's when I'm happiest. And like that just, you know, what you said there just completely makes sense. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. I I agree with your thoughts on progress, especially um, 
again, speaking a little bit as devil devil's advocate in a, in a yoga world is that we're, we're as yogis meant to have this idea of, of non-attachment, which mm. has its place. But um, if you keep trying at something and you're not, and you're not getting any amount of progress or success, then there's no reason to continue. And I think that that's, that's very true. Then time, there's time for a change in one way or another. Absolutely. And looking back at the last five years, um, what is a belief or a habit or a behavior maybe that has had the most influence in your life, the most positive influence in your, on your life? That's an interesting question. I think um, it's, I, I don't know how I want to answer that question exactly because it's a, there's a, an element of, of selfishness that's involved, hmm. um, <laughs> which means like what I said, like I make sure that I have my morning. I make sure that I do what I want to do. Um, and all of that is to make sure that I feel the most um, productive, the happiest, and then the second part of that, the reason why that selfishness works is because then I'm able to then um, go and talk to people and meet people and work with people in workshops. And one of the things that I have done that um, has changed for sure, and at least how I'm teaching, how I'm, how I'm doing workshops and things like that is um, every single workshop, at least when I'm live, uh, in the same room with people is I, I try and get to know some of their story. So I'm really like, instead of walking into a room and just doing a monologue, I'm trying to have a dialogue with people. And uh, that has definitely changed. And you, just before that, you mentioned, you know, as yogis, you shouldn't have attachment. Um, is that just attachment to things? Like, wh what do you mean by that? Oh, I don't know. It's a bit of a larger philosophical right. um, concept, which is that we're, it, it's in the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is that we're, we're meant to practice with all effort and enthusiasm, but then be unattached to the results. So what that means in, in life, which I think there's, there's a way that that can help you a bit, is that when you constantly are comparing yourself, even comparing yourself to your past or to your own successes, or you say, oh, I had this practice and I did so awesome today. And then expecting to be able to reproduce that the second day and the third day and the fourth day indefinitely, or get better besting yourself all the time. Um, that's where you can get a, like a little bit of a dangerous sort of perfectionist mentality. I think that that's part of why there's day one yoga is that you want to be able to start each day, each practice with fresh with, without comparison. So I think that non-attachment might be better said for a practical, like everyday human life, normal life, not like um, sort of a heavenly moksha life is, is non-comparison. Don't compare yourself. Try and start fresh, try and start each day as if it's new and is that the meaning behind your brand day one yoga yeah yeah it's part of the meaning obviously it's a play on my name um but yeah it's it's that you start each practice fresh if if you start thinking about oh my god 
my yoga practice. I've committed to yoga. I've committed to six days a week practice and that, and that, and six days a week, how many weeks in a year, how many years in my life? Oh man, it just looks like, mm. it looks like work. It looks like a job, a horrible job. But if you take each day as, as like its own thing, as its new thing, then it can be a, hopefully a, a rewarding experience rather than a chore. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, like a few years ago, I read the book Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, and mm-hmm. then I just started reading all these um other other books. Uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti, for example, Awareness by Anthony DeMello, and like the message behind that is like, if you understood that, like I think it's so so valuable for anyone, like just living in the present moment, because like right. there's no future, there's no past. You're only living in the present moment. And like, I love what you said there, like, you know, day one yoga and like just treating each practice as a completely new thing because you're always going to be living basically on a holiday. Like you're always just in a, on a holiday, just enjoying whatever, whatever's happening throughout the day. And even though you're doing the same thing each day, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like it's always fresh and always new. So I just absolutely love that. Yeah, exactly. And before we finish up, um, is there ending, um, uh, before we finish up, um, I'm just going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Okay. So if you had a billboard, if there was a billboard and this billboard is displayed to millions and billions of people. So anyone in the whole world can see this billboard. Um, what message would you put up on that billboard? Um, I think uh, based off of what you just said and based off of this conversation, I, I think I would say the power of you, the power of you, just uh, knowing your worth, knowing, knowing yourself, knowing your worth and, um, and, and sort of taking, taking the, the reins of your life and taking the, the, the power back in your own life, meaning um, don't necessarily give uh, all of your time and all of your money to experts or gurus or uh, whatever it may be. We all have this potential um, to to learn and to experience and to be amazing. So I think the billboard would say the power of you. Power of you. Um, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old self? So if you could go back to 20, to the 20-year-old self, what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, I would, uh, I would tell myself to take shortcuts whenever they present themselves. Don't take the long way. Don't take the hard way. Uh, don't torture yourself with, with, uh, um, sort of long painstaking, um, energy depletion, uh, activities. I would say take shortcuts and move efficiently and and quickly. (laughs) That's what I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. And what is the best investment you ever made? Now that investment might be time, it might be um, might be money, might be energy, um, whatever. Uh, so, what's the best investment that you have ever made? Oh wow, that's an interesting question. Um, hmm. Um, I, I I think obvi- the obvious answer is the best investment I ever made is in myself. Um, working on um, getting over fears, 
working on getting over um, childhood traumas, working on becoming a better, more loving person, smarter, things like that. So I guess the that's what I would have to say is the best investment you can make is yourself. And what have been your most recommended or gifted books? So books you have gifted the most to other people. Gifted. Oh, interesting. Gifted. Um, the, the book that I would gift right now, which I actually really haven't gifted anyone, is Think and Grow Rich um, by Napoleon Hill. But I think the book that I gifted the most probably was, um, uh, what is that book called? Um, it's an Osho book that is um, the one of relationships. It's uh, How to it's, Win Friends and Influence People. Is that the one? No, no, no. Um, I have it on my shelf. Hold on. I'm going to get it. <laughs> it's called, it's called Love, Freedom, and Aloneness. Love, Freedom, and Aloneness. I think I've given that book to people more than anything else and any other recommended books that you think people should just really check out that really made a positive influence on your life um there's another book um and well the 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 patanjali yoga sutras are also really obviously very good for people who are searching yoga i would probably recommend that book definitely the book i just mentioned um as far as like Think and Grow Rich is the one that I just said, but Think and Grow Rich is essentially the exact same thing as The Secret. So if you ever watched that that Rhonda Byrne uh, movie on Netflix or you ever read the book, that that's that's the, the law of attraction. What you think, what you feel, it all comes back to you. So I think that would be probably a big, a big kind of easy to digest and impactful at the same time and final question for you is what is your definition of chasing passion chasing passion mm. is that the question what's my definition of chasing passion hmm. interesting it's curiosity i think more than anything i think you would in order to there's a lot of people who live their life not knowing what they're into not like i my i have fam family members like that who who don't know what they want to be when they grow up or things like that. So like it's curiosity and, and acting almost childlike and, and doing what you really find enjoyment doing. You can, you can make a career out of anything really, especially now. So definitely doing what um, brings you joy. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And before we finish up, is there anything else? To, oh, first of all, uh, where can people find you? Uh, daywinyoga.com. Um, that's my website, daywinyoga.com, the number one. Um, you can, that's my handle for everything. So Instagram is daywinyoga and Facebook is daywinyoga as well. And um, yeah, I'd love to get um, messages or comments or feedback from people. Like I said, I'm making it a point to connect um, in my life. So yeah, send me messages if you, if anyone hears this and wants to reach out. Um, before we finish up, is there anything else that you want to say, mention, any final comments, any final closing thoughts? 
yeah, here's my closing thought, which is um, if you are the person who thinks, um, oh, that's me in my next life, uh, you are so wrong. This is the life. This is, it's now's the time. And if you think that you're too old or you're too um, weak or you're too fat or whatever it may be, whatever self-deprecating thoughts you may have, uh, I just want to tell you it's not true. Um, and speaking of age, I have my, my two favorite students are in their seventies and the, the wife, um, practices every time that I see her practice, they practice yoga about three times a week, but I see them twice a week. And every practice that she does, she does about 30 to 40 handstands, a woman who's 74 years old. So I basically, the message is this, this is what I'm going to leave you with. It is not your next life. It is now. You can do it now. I don't care how old you are. Whatever you want to make happen, you can make it happen. That is for sure. Day, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the show notes on the website chasingpassion.ie. That is chasingpassion.ie. If you're looking to support the podcast in any way, I would really appreciate if you could leave a short review on Apple Podcast, and this would literally take about 60 seconds and it will help the podcast grow in so many ways. You can find the link to Apple Podcast in the episode description or just simply search Chasing Passion on Apple Podcast and it should pop right up. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, just thank you so much and have a great day.